Unlike a decade ago when we were combating the surge of new atheism, now we live in a strange culture where people seem to be open to talking about spiritual things, but oddly polarized about, well, everything. Whether it's politics, worldview, or even when it's okay to start listening to Christmas music, we are a deeply divided people. And it can make Christians feel apprehensive about engaging in conversation about our beliefs and convictions. So how do we offer the hope of the gospel in such a tricky cultural moment? We're gonna be talking about all of that and more on today's episode of Theology On Air. Well, welcome back to Theology On Air. We are, of course, a ministry of Theology by the Pint, where we talk about all kinds of interesting things around theology, philosophy, faith and culture, Bible, um, and all with a good craft beer in our hand. Um, but here on the podcast, we get to dive a little bit deeper and meet with uh, really interesting people and and explore those ideas some more. So welcome. We're so glad you're here. And if you enjoy uh, the podcast, give us all the love, um, like, subscribe, ring the bell, do the things. There's lots of things. Um, you guys know what to do to help us grow. Um, but I am Sarah Stone. I'm the executive director for Theology by the Pint. I am joined by uh, Evan McClanahan, the senior pastor of uh, First Lutheran here in Midtown Houston, Texas. And today we're joined by, if you're already watching, you know this face, and some of you are going to be so <laughs> freaked out and fangirling out there. We're so excited to have Greg Kokel <laughs> joining us today. Greg oh, is the sweet. founder. Oh, well, we're excited. <laughs> He is the founder and president of Stand to Reason, which you may have heard of. Uh, Greg received his master's in philosophy of religion and ethics at Talbot School of Theology, graduating with high honors, and his master's in Christian apologetics with honors from Simon Greenleaf University. He serves as an adjunct professor in Christian apologetics at Biola University, and he's the author of the award-winning The Story of Reality and the best-selling Tactics, which many of you have probably heard of or read, or maybe it has been used on you. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit before we get to his new book, Street Smarts. Um, but before we get to all of that, uh, just a warm welcome to you, Greg. We're so happy to have you. Well, it has been warm. I really appreciate that. I'm sorry I'm sans my pint right now, but I do have a <laughs> few cigars over here in my hum humidor. So maybe that, that counts. Half, it's a vice. Counts, so we'll, right? we'll accept it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we actually don't drink on the podcast. And remarkably, I actually don't drink at our events, but but other people do. So, um, yeah, I drink two for you. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> and also I just want to say we are at 666 YouTube subscribers this week. And I want to, I want to thank the person that got us over the hump. So we're not in danger of, you know, any, that, that doesn't oh make gosh. you the antichrist now, does it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, Although, yeah. I mean, all press is good press, right? I'm joking. I'm joking. You know, uh, this, what this means is a whole bunch of people got to subscribe to get you past this number. So yes. you're not jinxed in some way. I so know. We need, we need to get to 777 like soon. There you go. So anyway, maybe I shouldn't have Perfection. said how few subscribers we have, or maybe that's a decent number. Anyway. Well, that's just on YouTube. Then yeah. there's also the people yeah. that just listen on podcasts. So I'm but sure that's not the devil's number too. Hopefully not. Well, okay. You know what, just to be safe, go ahead and go yeah. subscribe and, you know, we'll be there good. Go. Um, so, Greg, some people will know who you are, but um, some of our listeners may never have heard of your name or read your books. And so tell us just before we get into books and apologetics and all that kind of stuff, right. just tell us a little bit about who you are, how you came to faith, why it is you're interested mm -hmm. in things like tactics to have these spiritual conversations. Give us right. the- Right. Well, I- 
I am the founder and president of Stand to Reason. So a lot of people are familiar with our organization. We've been in play for 30 years. This is our 30th oh, wow. year, and we're having a big celebration about that. So we're thrilled that uh, God has given life to this enterprise for so long and prosperity to it. And that, I think, is why people will be familiar with us, because we have a big footprint. Though we're fairly modest size, we only have uh, about 18 or 19 um, staff members. We have five speakers, uh, content providers, got a big internet presence str.org. But my story starts 50 years ago. In fact, I, I just had my 50th spiritual birthday on September 28th. I was 23 years old and a student at UCLA and um, just a guy doing the kind of hip thing that most young people were doing back then. Long hair and uh, very <laughs> easygoing and, you know, everything's cool kind of deal. Not I had no strong spiritual convictions. I did come out of the Roman Catholic Church, but mm. when I was 16 in the mid 60s, I just blew that off. And uh, and like many people who are raised in a religious environment, when someone in a very thoughtful way asked me directly, do you really believe that? After I was kind of parroting my theological point of view, I paused and thought about it and I realized I didn't. And so mm. I just abandoned that having with that thought I had tried Christianity and then went off to em embrace all of the the things in the counterculture. And this was a, a very different world than we have now. What we have now, the prophet says, if you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. We are in the whirlwind mm. now that was, was sown back mm. in the 60s, you know. So, uh, but it was in a very adventurous time for me and I was my own man and I could do what I want. I was a moral relativist. I I was beholden to no one. I was captain of my own fate uh, and, yeah. and whatever, you know, like a lot of people think. And what I ended up, and without going into all the detail, it, it's, there were some turn of events in my life that really forced me to look hard at the substance of my worldview that I had at the time. Uh, and what what I ended up realizing what there was nothing there. Hmm. It was it was it was very self-centered. It was very um, narcissistic, uh, like a lot of the culture is now. But when it came to substance, there was nothing there. I called it cosmic alienation. That was the phrase I had for it then. And I realized, hmm. it, like many people are realizing now, that the worldviews that they hold, which are largely self-centered, are not adequate to build a life on yeah. or to build a world. We're just not large enough, us individually. And um, now that didn't bring me to Christ, but it was a real wake up. And yeah. the wake up was that uh, if this is the way life is, that's not much. Yeah. That's not much. Okay. And we all have this intuitive sense that there's more out there, that there's meaning mm -hmm. out there. Anyway, so my younger brother, Mark, had become a Christian in the Jesus movement, which was which was really mm -hmm. um, at full tilt at that time, the early 70s. And uh, um, he began talking to me about Christ. We're from the Midwest. We grew up in Chicago. I went to a couple of different schools. I was at Michigan State University. Then I was at UCLA. We were both on the West Coast at this point in our lives. And he was talking to me more and more about Jesus. And I, I just came to a point. I don't, I don't want to say that he really wore me down. I think the Holy Spirit wore <laughs> me down. There yeah. was a point in which I said, I prayed this kind of prayer that a lot of people pray, by the way, as you listen to people give an account of how they became followers of Jesus. I I prayed the, the, the I don't know what they call it, the skeptics prayer or whatever. The just said, in case God, prayer kind of. Well, if you're really there. Yeah. God, and Jesus is who my brother Mark is saying he is, then I want to know. 
And yeah. I just really opened my heart. And then I just kind of got inundated everywhere I turned mm. with some representation of Christ. And uh, I was the hound of heaven was on my tail. And yeah. September 28th, 1973 is when I bowed my head and uh, bent my knee and surrendered my life. And I've been following yeah. the Lord ever since. It has not been easy. I'm just always quick to tell people that, you know, Jesus is not the bridge over troubled waters. Yeah. But as one of my early teachers told me, he will pull you through the t- troubled waters if you can stand the toe. Oh, I love that. Yeah, That's it's great. great. Tom Brewer, I'm just giving him credit for that. So uh, I'm a student there at UCLA. Westwood Village is where all the happening is there, right in the edge of campus. And I'd go out there and walk the streets on, in the evenings and all kinds of religious trips being uh, being broadcast during that time and uh, cultic groups and Hare Krishnas and other Christians mm-hmm. too. And so uh, it was easy to get into conversations, but I realized I was not well-suited to deal with the challenges and okay. because I didn't understand them. And there were a whole lot of questions I still had that I hadn't answered when I yeah. began to follow Christ. Okay. And so um, I ended up getting attached in a very dramatic way, a uh, strange way that God set this up. You look back and you can just see the footprints right there. Um, God's fingerprints, I should say, uh, over the whole mm-hmm. thing, uh, a Christian community there in Westwood Village that I ended up living at for two and a half years. I mean, it was called the Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse. I, I know it sounds kind of corny, but that was the Jesus movement after all, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the movie, Jesus. Yeah, there's a Netflix movie about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I I didn't see the movie. I lived it. I didn't need to you know, <laughs> see it. So uh, anyway, uh, that was a, put me in a position to get tremendous theological training, discipleship, and training in apologetics. And I read Josh McDowell, and I read uh, oh, yeah. Francis Schaefer, especially- uh-huh. Some C.S. Lewis, and there weren't many available back at that time. But as I began to become more uh, informed about a thoughtful approach to my Christian convictions, my convictions deepened in confidence. And uh, and that just set me on a a road. I was very interested in these kinds of things. So I just pursued them. And it naturally had an influence the way I interacted with people. So very soon after that, I I was uh, not only sharing Christ with people on the street. I was doing that immediately, but um, but I was I was getting these new converts together for a little Bible study and and with what I knew, which wasn't much, but it was more than they knew, and uh, and that just created a pattern in my life of growth and understanding and not only being discipled, which I was discipled very aggressively by an individual for over almost well actually six years, but intensely for three years. And but also discipling others myself, and that's yeah. actually my heartbeat is is yeah. is building the body of Christ through mentoring of some sort. The advantage I have now, and it's a little bit odd, is that even though I do still mentor in a face to face way with people, particularly my staff people, my content providers, I call them my young guns. You know, mm-hmm. I'm the old gun, right? But uh, but now I get to do it in an odd sort of way, kind of through the dig- digital medium. Yeah. And there are lots of people that have said to me, you know, I, I consider you my mentor. And and even though I've never met them before, yeah. um, they know me, but I don't know them. And I'm very flattered by that. And I'm glad that yeah. that's happening because I want to leave behind a legacy like that. And you are. I mean, so I mentioned in the bi- in the bio a couple of books you've written, but the one that I think most people know is Tactics. Right. And this is on so many shelves of so many people. Tell us, I, I know that's not the book we're here to talk about today, but but they're, you know, in the same sort of category. Tell us well, they are related. About, right. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that book. And then I'm going to tell a story about a time that I used 
one of your tactics and it actually worked. Uh, but tell us, tell us like what led you to write surprise, that. Surprise, surprise, right? I know. Uh, the tactics works and you're not even trying. And maybe later on, I'll have an opportunity to give an illustration that is in the Street Smarts book, which is a follow-up to tactics. Yeah. But they both are based on a, a fundamental uh, approach. Uh, let me let me back up. They're based on an, um, an understanding of New Testament evangelism, which is not the way we do evangelism now. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm just saying we can we can explore that later. <laughs> it's it's also based on the importance of using questions rather than yep. making statements, because questions keep you safe. Just to put it simply, no, and we love being safe. Yes, that's right. I mean, a lot of people aren't getting off the bench because it's too scary out there, and yep. I, I'm sympathetic. Mm-hmm. I get it. Um, and it's also based on a three-step game plan. And uh, one of the reasons I say people don't uh, d- do well, they don't, Christians don't even engage at all, is they they're scared, which is understandable, especially in the culture. They don't understand evangelism, in my view, properly, in the New Testament sense. And thirdly, they don't have a plan. And so the tactics book was meant to outline a game plan and then give a a series of other maneuvers, tactics, that will help in communicating with people and seeing the flaws in other people's views. So we have Mm -hmm. tactics that have names like taking the roof off and just the fax spam and road scholar and inside out and what a friend we have in Jesus, et cetera. These, these names are meant to recall, help the person recall the tactic itself that you can employ in friendly conversations with people that gives you an edge. Um, But the center is the game plan. And I call the game plan Columbo. Now I've named the game plan. Now you're you're grinning because you know who the infamous Lieutenant Columbo was from TV. Well, I do. The the people listening to the podcast may not, but yes, this was a show on TV. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, he's the number one most recognized TV icon of all time. He even beat Lucy. You know, and I know some of your viewers are saying, who's Lucy, right? Okay, yes, they are, and that's okay. But he's great, though, because he was a he was a, um, a, a murder detective who would show up in the crime scene and then kind of prosecute the situation, talking to people by coming in v- very much under the radar, not yep. looking dangerous at all. Unassuming. Asking, scratching his head and, you know, <laughs> wondering his cigar, you know, something about this thing bothers me, you know. Do you mind if I ask you a question, right? And so, so, so he's not threatening at all. But right. by asking these questions over and over and probing, he's gathering all kinds of information that allows him that informs other questions. See, this is right. really important. He just doesn't start with gathering information. Now he begins to use his questions to implicate somebody he thinks is guilty in mm-hmm. a sly way. And so there's a sense in which, though we are gathering information of two different sorts with the two steps the first two steps of the three-step game plan. We are also in the third step. We are now we're going to make a point. We are we are trying to um, maybe deflect a challenge or uh, advance our point of view in some way or um, show a weakness or a flaw in somebody else's view. But we're going to do that by using questions. And this is a, a skill. I think most people, um, they don't even know how to do that. And no, it's actually that, a lost art in our culture at large, not just when it comes to spiritual conversations. People don't ask questions and and I could go yeah. off about how that's mm-hmm. affecting all kinds of things. He's laughing because I talk about it in the dating world. People don't ask questions anymore. Mm-hmm. I want to say quickly though, for our audience, it, a lot of the words you're using might sound like 
you know, we're trying to like trick people or have some sort of military scheme. The whole oh. idea around this is that we want to be able to tell people the very good news about the truth that Jesus is who he says he was mm-hmm. and that he has a plan for your life and he came to rescue you and, and you can be, you know, together with God for eternity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all good things we're trying to accomplish. It's right. Not like right. That is, a, that is a liability of the title. I understand that it's a military <laughs> term, but, um, you know, it's stuck. And so the, I, I've been teaching on this for a long time and the publishers on have been raised a concern about that. I said, look at this, is, it's already got name recognition. So we're yeah. branded. So we're going to stick with it. But to your point, these engagements are not to be gladiator events. Right. We are not looking to draw blood. We are not looking to, you know, get first kill, you know, that kind of deal. We, we, we are using a technique that even Jesus used. Jesus yeah. asked, you know, more than so 200 questions. questions. Yeah. Right. And they are used to maneuver artfully mm-hmm. in a conversation in a way that makes it easier for the Christian and safer for the Christian. Let's face yeah. it. If the Christian thinks this is too complicated or too risky, they're not going to do it. All right. Yeah. So it'd make it easier and um, and safer for the Christian, yet at the same time, um, query the non-Christian in appropriate ways about yeah. their views. And we'll probably get into some examples of that shortly, but but it's it's not meant to be tricks. It's meant yeah. to it's meant to replace preaching. Okay. People who are more aggressive in apologetics and have have learned a few things, they end up preaching at people. And that's confrontational. Yeah. Okay. And we it don't want the confrontation. It requires you to have all kinds of information at the ready, which of course we should always be prepared to give a defense. And also um, we're not always. And so I, I will tell the story of the one time, the the first time that I used this, I actually at that point had not read the book. Someone had told me about some of the bare bones of, of tactics and the idea yeah. behind it. And I was in a conversation with a group of people at dinner and a girl had brought a guy that she was dating to meet some of her friends. And so we were peppering him with questions and, um, Something the girlfriends came up. protecting. Yes, 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 yes. I got so, you. I know um, how that works. Something came up about spirituality, and one of the other girls put her head up, her hand on her face, like, "Oh, you should not talk to Sarah about this because she is like the resident. Like, she loves to talk about spiritual things, and you're in a trap, you know." And so, um, I just said to him, "Well, d- did you grow up, you know, like uh, in Christian home, or like, what, where are you on that kind of front?" I can't believe you asked him. And so that's not the tactic, oh. and um. He started this whole thing. Oh, he grew up Methodist, but he doesn't believe any of that now. And it's just so silly. And he put this statement out there. He said, you know, like we can't even trust the Bible because it was just put together like a game of telephone by a bunch of faulty people over the years. And he he says this thing, lots of people say. Mm -hmm. And I had this nanosecond decision where (laughs) part of me, the aggressive part of me, because I actually love apologetics, was Mm -hmm. ready to give this whole, well, I bet you didn't know. And I was going to give him this whole treatise on how the Bible was actually put together. And it's actually quite trustworthy. And we have all this evidence, but I had just had this conversation about your book. And so I thought, <laughs> instead of giving him all the information on the Bible, I'm just going to say this phrase. Um, what, what makes you think that what made you come to that conclusion? Right. And, um, and the craziest <laughs> thing happened. He, so he had said this all blustery, like, oh, I can't even trust it. No, no, no. And I said, well, what made you come to that conclusion? And he's paused for a second, this like long pregnant pause. And he goes, well, now that I think about it, I guess I kind of just made that up. I don't know. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I just eliminated hours of conversation because yeah. he doesn't need me to give him all that. Well, did you know? Yeah. And yeah. I just said something I, I like, am... what, 
So uh -huh. I am so glad that you shared that because actually there's a, more than one thing going on there that I see in light of the whole tactical approach. For yeah. one, he's, he starts out by saying, I was raised this way, but that's silly, you know? Right. And uh, and the, the game plan, just for those who are not familiar, the first two steps uh, require gathering different types of information. And the first is it general information about a view and you use some form of the question, what do you mean by that? And the yeah. second one is gathering reasons for right. the view. And that's some form of the question, how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah. And there you were, Sarah, you, that's the question you asked. Now you, you, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give you demerits here for jumping the first step and going right to the second doesn't matter because look at how effective it was. Yeah. And, and what, here's what you got. And I gave, I spoke to a group at Westminster seminary uh, yesterday and I told them this very thing. When you ask people what they mean by something or their reasons for it, you're going to get what I call, and here's a 60s alert, so just letting you guys know, <laughs> uh, a Simon and Garfunkel moment. Mm. Remember those two guys? They're great oh, musicians. Of they're still alive, but they're really old now. But um, they they made this song, recorded this song in 1966 called The Sounds of Silence. Mm -hmm. All right? The Sounds and of Silence. And so again. sometimes you ask them, what do you mean by that? You get dead air. Or yeah. if you ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? You get dead air. And yeah. I actually told them yesterday, and I do this frequently, but it, so it's part of my talk, but it fits so well with your anecdote here. I said, people will come into a conversation with their sales full of themselves and their ideas and their confidence. And when you simply ask, what do you mean by that? Or in your case, how yeah. did you come to that conclusion? All the wind goes out of their sails yeah. and their four sheets to the wind, right? They're just like, they, they're becalmed. They don't know what to say because they don't have reasons for their view. They are repeating what they've heard other people say. Yeah. So your instincts, Sarah, at that point were perfect. And the result was That's the mean, sound not we're surprising. The short. Yeah. I give you the gold star. Thanks. Yeah, yeah most right. people, they, they just move from kind of soundbite to soundbite from echo chamber to echo chamber. And uh, they, I mean, I talked to college students. We're, we're we're in a church right across from a college, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and people will come up, and they are certain they've got the answer that will shut That's me right. up. You know, on abortion, they'll be like, "Well, it's a woman's right to choose," or they, it's just some cliche. Uh, that's that's you know, and they've never had it questioned, and and so that's right. So I I do I do use your your tactics. I'll just ask a few questions, and it's like it's like I punched him in the face. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so, like yeah. yeah. It it's it it is surprising. I know you're speaking metaphorically there, but sometimes it it stops them so cold they don't know what hit them. All right. Now the, the friend that you were talking to, uh, Sarah, said that all oh, his his prior beliefs in religion, Christianity, Methodism were all silly. Now, see, I would have been inclined to say what was silly about them. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I'm not. It's not a challenge. It's a, a genuine question. Why would you think that was silly? People say, well, belief in God is irrational. Really, what's irrational about believing a God? I, I'm mm -hmm. open to hearing that, but I, I, yeah. I want to know what that is. Hey guys, Sarah here. Sorry to interrupt what I'm sure is an amazing podcast episode, but I just wanted to tell you that Theology by the Pint is growing. We are now a 501c3 nonprofit organization and we're expanding. 
This coming year, with your help, we'll grow our reach by adding events in multiple Houston suburbs as well as launch a youth version. Don't worry. Those will be pints of iced coffee, not beer. Uh, We're adding follow-up conversations to reach the spiritually curious and the unchurched. We're also growing our connections and partnerships with more local churches. And you can help us grow by praying for us, by telling your friends or church about us, and of course, by partnering with us financially. To donate, go to theologybythepint.org forward slash give. You know, if each of our podcast listeners gave $100, we would reach our annual budget right then. Consider donating today. Okay, enjoy the rest of the show. Um, so that would have been my first question, maybe. Uh, but you were great the way you, you, you <laughs> as a as a rank amateur, look at oh the my gosh. That it had. Well, really, you well, said you, thank I, thought, you. I thought you were supposed to say, what is your epistemological oh my God. basis yeah, yeah. for rationality <laughs> at all? Ep- you're, in a Cartesian yeah. universe. Yeah, the epistemic virtue of your, yeah, that's right. But no, it uh, wasn't a put down. I, when I say rank amateur, you admitted you had not even read yeah. the book. Somebody yeah. had given you just the bare bones and you tried one aspect of it and it had magnificent results. It saved you a lot of trouble. And by the way, you weren't on the spot at all because you that's asked what a I was, question. That's what I was leading in with is that it just took all of the work away from me. And props to the guy for being honest with himself mm-hmm. and with us to to admit, yeah, yeah. I actually don't have reasons. But mm-hmm. so, I but, will, but I but yeah. I would say, like, also do the research on the you know the origin, like sure. like this isn't the uh, telephone game and stuff like that. I mean, do your yeah. homework and have it in the you know have it in, in your back chamber. pocket. But don't yeah don't you know so that because it might be that the conversation later comes around. It's like well no how did it yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So, so, but see, this is where another question comes in, even if you don't know all the details, but you know some, of course, Evan, and that's why you wanted to challenge that uh, characterization the telephone game is that that's not the way it happened. But um, the next question is then why do you, th- you, you mentioned the telephone game. I understand that we used to play it as kids, you know, but why would you think that's the way the Bible was handed down? That's the second question. How did you come to that conclusion? Why do you think that that's what actually happened? And that was the question you kind of asked him, and he he had nothing in response. He knew nothing about textual criticism, which is the the yeah. field that we're talking about. If you know some, fine, but don't don't uh, abandon the simple questions that you could ask, just like we've been talking about. Uh, if yeah. I were in a conversation, I know all about te- textual criticism, but I'd start out like you did. Yeah, let them bear the burden for their own claims. Yeah, so. So people should read tactics. It's great. Um, but you now have a new book. Um, right. So tell us about the new book and how is it different? Street smarts. <laughs> um, so yeah. How is it different from tactics? What is it? How does it build on it? What's what's new and different and why should people buy them both? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it, there is a, um, just so, just so folks know, you don't have to read tactics uh, to, to, to read, to use street smarts because not a the basic movie. game plan. Okay. I, there's overlap there. So I revisit the basic game plan. I talk about how questions keep you safe. I talk about in evangelism, and we haven't talked about this yet, but we might, how don't worry about harvesting, worry about gardening. Okay. This is very, very important. Okay. Hopefully Why don't you go we'll ahead and say a little bit about that now then? Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, the uh, And I'll get to the how a street yeah. smart's different, but yeah. uh, this is really important. And I only touch on it a little bit in tactics in the introduction, but I have a whole chapter on it in street smarts. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, Jesus in John chapter four, after he talks to the woman at the well, the disciples come up and he tells the disciples that there's a harvest in Sychar that's ready. You say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Look on the field. 
it's ripe for harvest. This is ready to go. And then he says, you are about to reap where you did not sow. You are about to reap where you did not sow. Now, there's a couple of things that are, that are kind of inherent in that comment. First of all, there's one field, in this case, Sychar, all right? And that field was ready, all right? But there are two kinds, but there are two seasons. There's a sowing season and a reaping season. There's a, there's a gardening season and a mm -hmm. harvesting season. There's... Uh, there's synonyms there, but that's the way I characterize it. And he said there's two 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 types of workers. Even though there's one team, disciples, there are sowers and reapers. Yeah. There are gardeners and there's harvesters. All right. Now yeah. the disciples in that circumstance are going to get the easy pickings. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. Now there's an important point here. And it it's so obvious it's often overlooked. But here it is. The, <laughs> the harvest is easy when the fruit is ripe. Yep. The, I'm going to say it again because this is so important. The harvest is easy when the fruit is ripe. In the fall, if you have an apple orchard nearby and it's harvest season, where are you going to find most of the apples? They're laying on the ground. Yeah. They fall off all on their own because they're ready. And when I, yeah. September 28, 1973, when my brother came to me to share more with me about Christ that night, I told him, Mark, you don't need to tell me more about Jesus. I already decided I want to become a Christian. So what happened? Mark bumped into the fruit and it fell into the basket. That's <laughs> it. In fact, I harvested myself. I har He didn't harvest me. Now we know it's the Holy Spirit that does that, sure. but this is kind of the point I'm making. The hard work is in the gardening, but all of our evangelism tools are harvest oriented. That's oh, why that is so true. The little, they have the little prayer in the back. And yep. so the pressure is on us to close the deal and get, get people to, to pray yeah, the prayer. Close the deal. Yeah. When when the when the Holy Spirit closes closes the deal. Now I've been taking um, uh, polls with audiences when I'm trying to make this point because they're so into this idea that evangelism means trying to get people to pray to receive Christ, come forward yep. in an altar call, and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. And 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 so here's the question I ask of the audiences, and I asked it of the audience yesterday. Thirty five graduate students at Westminster Seminary, okay, in Southern California. I said, how many here are Christians? who did not become Christian by walking forward on a, at an altar call or by having somebody pray with them the to receive prayer. Jesus as yeah. Lord and Savior, okay? Every single person in that class raised their hand. And my average is 75%, 70 to yeah. 70, no matter how big the audience is, I can say, keep your hands up, look around. Yeah. 70 to 75%. In most cases, people don't get harvested the Holy Spirit harvests them. Many people don't even know when they became Christians. Yeah. They just knew that they weren't at one point. Okay, so with that in mind, since that's the dynamic, and by the way, that's the New Testament method. No altar calls in the book of Acts. Yeah. Nobody being challenged to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Even a woman at the well. Jesus, she says something about Messiah, and Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Now, why don't you pray this prayer with me and receive me as Lord and Savior, and then you'll be saved. <laughs> No, she says, OMG, right? Hey, that would be appropriate. <laughs> oh my Literally. God. Right. And then off to Sychar because she's so excited about this man who's told her everything. So there was no need to do that. That kind of is a natural consequence of the whole process of communicating bits and pieces here and there over time. And by the yeah. way, this is so important because in my case and in almost every case, it takes time for people to understand what the message is and the the um the implications of the message i don't want decisions for christ i want conversions <laughs> mm. 
Yeah. And conversions mm. take time. Yeah. That is decisions that stick. They take time. And so it's why not? Why don't we focus in on the gardening part? And instead of worrying about the harvest, that's my recommendation to people. Well, and not to mention, by the way, that it takes just like the questions do so much pressure off because, or that, that feeling of discouragement, when you walk away from a conversation, um, it's almost like, it doesn't even matter if the needle moved at all. If you didn't get your yes, or you didn't, as you said, close the deal, you walk away and you think, oh, like I didn't do it right. Or I didn't do a good job, but like our faithfulness is not measured by people saying yes and praying the sinner's prayer. You know, I'm so glad you said that, Sarah, because uh, it may be that there are things that we could have improved on in the conversation. And that's part sure. of the tactical training. How can I get better at this kind of thing? But we 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 cannot measure our faithfulness by the by the reaction of other people, like becoming Christians or whatever. That's on God's side of the ledger. We cannot cause mm. a single person to escape from the snare of the devil, mm. um, overcome their own internal sinful hostility to God, and mm. bend their knee and and give mm -hmm. their lives to Christ. We cannot do, we can't, that's a huge job. God does that. Yeah. And so what we focus in on is our side, and that is to communicate as faithfully, as truthfully, as graciously, and as persuasively as possible. And if yeah. we've done that, that's a success before our audience of one, if we've done that. If, if we it. haven't, we can improve on that a little bit better, but we're not a failure if we didn't get a notch in our belt. And I'll just right. say this, by the way, for your listeners, they're going to freak out at this, but I have not prayed with someone to receive Christ in over 30 years. I know some are thinking like, what a loser. <laughs> no one's thinking that, Greg. But but uh, I have not been as effective for Christ as I have been in the last 30 years for the cause of yeah. Christ. And, and I could name you people whose names are on apologetics books right now like Jay Warner Wallace or Abdu Murray. Oh, we love know, Jay Warner. For example, who were in my garden yes. when Jay Warner Wallace was an atheist and when Abdu yep. Murray was a Muslim, for example. Yeah. You know, they were in my garden. You know, yeah. they were listening to the show and and using our stuff and 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 uh, I was gardening them and that was a, by their own testimony to me. They're both very close friends of mine now. And Jim worked for us for 2 years as a matter of fact. Yeah. And so um, at stand to reason, but but notice how you, I, I didn't have to be the one who led them to Christ yeah. to have a meaningful impact in their journey towards Christ. Okay, I love that. That's great. Thank yeah. you. Okay, so so stand. I mean, uh, street gardening. Talk about how it's. Um, what is Different. it offering that's new? Yeah. Okay, so the tactics game plan is three parts asking questions. Uh, the first one, what do you mean by that? The second question, how did you come to that conclusion? Both safe, no trouble, easy to do. You don't need to know anything except for the questions and the move maneuver. The third one is making a point. And we're going to make a point, as I mentioned, I think before, either to parry a charge or a challenge, or to maybe commend our view to them, or maybe to show a flaw in their own view. Okay. Now, th that's what Street Smarts focuses in on. Okay. substantively, this third step. And that's why they're, well, what are the views? Well, I have two chapters in atheism. I have a chapter mm -hmm. on the problem of evil. I have a chapter on, can you be good without God? So the whole moral question and relativism is built into there. Um, can I, um, I have two chapters on, on abortion. I have two chapters on the person of Christ. I have two chapters on the Bible, all the kinds of things that come out against any of those issues. I have uh, a chapter on gender and sex and marriage. So these are all the hot button issues right now that yeah. we're facing. If you are going to make a point against a person's view or parry a challenge, you first have to know <laughs> what's wrong with the challenge or what's wrong saying. with the view. Yeah. 
Okay. So, uh, and that's where the, the bulk of the substance of street smarts is. I give background information about all of these kinds of challenges in all the areas that I just identified that people make against Christianity or maybe Christian ethics. And uh, once you get the understanding, okay, you see, oh, these are the weak spots. Now, how do we put those, uh, that knowledge into play in dialogues now with them with leading questions? Remember, mm -hmm. the subtitle of Street Smarts is using questions to answer Christianity's, Christianity's toughest challenges. So can I give it a, a, an example? Of, Please of do. It? Yeah. Okay. So you, lots of times atheists will say, and I just heard it again the other day uh, on my own show, in fact, uh, my own radio show, or I guess they call them podcasts now. So that's how far <laughs> back do. I go. 33 <laughs> years in, in radio. Um, there's no evidence. This is an atheist. There's no evidence for God. There's yeah. no evidence for God. So here's my first response. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Incidentally, this not only is this dialogue in the book, book, but this is I've had this dialogue lots of times with people. Okay. Um, <clears throat> do you mind if I ask you a few questions? No, go ahead. Uh, they're simple. The first couple are real simple, but you know, then we'll get to the one that really matters. Okay. First of all, do you think that things exist? Yes, I do. <laughs> Okay, yeah. I agree with you. That's easy, right? I okay, where this, this is a little going. harder. The things that exist, have they always existed? That's my second question. Okay, now what I'm getting at is whether they think the universe had a beginning. Sure. Guess what? Everybody does. Yes. Christians do, non-Christians do. Everybody right. believes the universe had a beginning. And this is where Big Bang cosmology comes sure. in. Now, some people don't like Big Bang. Christians don't like Big Bang cosmology. Don't worry about the wording. What we're focused right. in on is that there's a beginning. We both believe that. Whatever it was, doesn't matter. We both believe that. And so when I ask them, do you think um, these things always existed? Were they internal? No, they all came into existence whenever by the Big Bang. Okay, great. Got that. Okay, great. here's the third question. Third question is, and this is the one that matters, I tell them, what caused everything to come into existence? Now, make it easy for you. You have two choices, either something or no thing. Or nothing, yes. Something or nothing. Now, I say no thing partly because sometimes people take nothing and pretend like it's something, you know, yes. like nothing can do things, right? Lawrence Krauss does yeah. that. Lawrence Krauss, exactly. <laughs> and so it turns out that his nothing isn't any it's nothing. It's not nothing. Yeah. It's the quantum vacuum or whatever. It's yes. still something. Nevertheless, I'm trying to make this clear. This is it. Either the universe is caused or it's uncaused. That's right. another way to put it. What do you think? You're the atheist. What do you think? Now, he doesn't want to say it's caused, that something caused it, because that would have to be something outside of the material universe, which is the right. effect. The transcendent, yeah. Right. It would have to be something pretty powerful and pretty smart and probably a person to initiate the whole process. Oh, that sounds too much like God to him. He doesn't want sure. to go there. But what's his only other alternative? He's got to say the universe popped into existence with no cause, for mm -hmm. no reason, and with no purpose. And by the way, those last three, two phrases go along with the first phrase. If there is no cause, there is no purpose. And there is no, mm -hmm. no mm -hmm. any of that, that go, goes with it, right? There's no reason for it, no purpose for it. And that's what you're stuck with if that's your view. Now you can make yeah. up your own, re, you know, purpose if you want to. You're welcome to it. But nobody's purpose is any better than others, any other. So Hitler's purpose and Mother Teresa's purpose on that view, you can't adjudicate between the two. They're just now you're in a whole other point. category of the moral argument. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So you, that's what you've got to argue. So 
so he is stuck now because now he's forced to choose between a reasonable alternative, something caused everything, and an unreasonable alternative, the atheist's alternative. Now, I'm not trying to prove that God exists. Right. I'm just saying, what's the smart move here? What's yeah. the odds on favorite? That's all I'm yeah. trying to say. Now, you want to say everything started nothing? All right. I mean, I don't see things popping into, into existence for no cause and Uncaused, no reason yeah. around. You know, it's like I wish like a, a new F-150, Ford F-150 would pop into existence in my driveway. I'd love that. But yeah. uh, it's not I have a few of those happen. requests as well. So I, I'm just so whose view now is more reasonable? Mm-hmm. It certainly seems to me to a fair-minded person that the that the theist view is most reasonable. Now, I want to I want to point out something about that little exchange, because that's an example of street smarts. Notice it's easy back and forth, and then I, in a certain sense, there's a mic drop moment at the end where we see what the questions have led up to, and now it's his turn to do something with that. All right, um, but notice one thing I did. I could have. Like maybe I have done in the past as a less experienced apologist, just laid out all this information. I was literally just going to say that in response to this. The, yeah, the, I, the difference here is you've taken a you've taken the cosmological argument and you've turned it into a question asking moment where they're right. engaging. Yeah. That's right. And so, but there's something that maybe you haven't seen here. Uh, first of all, it makes it more genial. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. But oh, if yeah. I had gone, well, things exist and things right. haven't always exist. They came into existence. There had to be a cause. It was something and therefore something outside of the natural universe. Mm-hmm. It had to be adequate to the cause and on and on. I could go with the cosmological argument, as you mentioned. Um, but notice that if I did that at every point of the way, they could have stopped me and say, wait a minute, maybe we're just butterflies dreaming. OK, right, right. Or maybe the maybe the universe is eternal. Some people have thought that we don't know for sure who's to say. Yeah. And all you got is your buddy heads at that point. But I didn't do that. When I asked the question, I'm actually enlisting the other person as a as a as an aide, a helper Partner. on my yeah. side to put the pieces on the table. I'm not putting them there. He is in response to the questions. Yeah. If he puts the pieces on the table, if I do, he can take exception with it. If he does then he's not going to take it off the table. He put it there. It was a common sense response. They're not going to backtrack on these. And virtually every single one of the conversations that I have, and there's, there, there are dozens, excuse me, of conversations in the book that I have uh, constructed with the leading questions as you Mm -hmm. move through the Mm -hmm. conversation, more questions to help them get to that point. So you can say, okay, now what about this? Yeah. Now they can't backtrack because they've affirmed common sense things all right and that is so much more powerful than any other way that i ever found that is what street smarts amounts to i love it and i'm gonna ask you a question that's not in the press kit so that's all right uh because i want to go back even a step before you get into that because i think you know you're in a position where you are talking to atheists people are constantly coming at you what about this great cool cool you know but the regular Joe Schmo Christian that's out there living their life, they're going to work, they're visiting with their friends over coffee, they're talking about relationships, or, or kids, a pint. whatever. What's that? Or a pint. Or a pint, yes. Um, it's like, I think people want to know, how do I even get into a moment where I could sure. even try this stuff out? It's not like someone's going to say like, oh, I tried this recipe over Thanksgiving. It did not turn out. Interesting. Let's talk about if things have causes. Like it is, yeah. that's not a sequitur. I mean, you know, so 
what so, are maybe some like hooks? What about some... the blood of Jesus? Yeah, exactly. Where'd that come from? You know, right. How do you even, for those who have friends that we love dearly and we want them to know about the hope that we have, how are, what are some ways that we can just bake it into conversation? Or is it just taking a leap and saying, listen, I want to talk about spiritual things. It's going no, to get there's crazy. A, that's, uh, if, well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. And you yeah. don't have to jump in in that kind of, um, you know, like um, artless fashion. Although I have yeah. friends, I had a friend that ended up writing more than 50 books that I was a roommate early in the Jesus movement, that that's exactly the way he, he'd walk out of UCLA campus. Uh, John Weldon was his name. And he'd just start talking. He's like, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Is that okay with you? So um <laughs> But no, most of us are not comfortable with that. And I get that. Okay. So there's a couple of things you can keep in mind. First of all, in conversations with other people, it is almost, it, it, if you're having conversations about anything that's marginally important, even current events, people are going to start making statements about things that entail a, a, a um, either a religious conviction of some sort. My Methodism was silly as you pointed out. Now, that was in response to a question. That was all right. But they, they might come out with that. Um, or or especially weighing in morally on some issue. Now, this yeah. is very common. And they don't, even people who are self-proclaimed relativists will say, you know, what I saw in the news, what that politician did, man, he shouldn't have done that. Yeah. What a jerk. That was wrong. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. I'm all confused. What do you mean you're confused? I thought you were a relativist. That there is no absolute or objective right and wrong. And now you're saying his wrong. So um, help me make sense of that. Okay. Now, that's a point where you could ask a question, clarification question, and, less, and listen to what they have to say based on what they've said. But there are a couple of ways if you want to engineer a conversation that aren't quite as abrupt. Um, and, and you might simply say, for example, if you wanted with some friends, or somebody you just met. Listen, I've been thinking about something, uh, and hmm. uh, not on topic right now. It's a different topic, but it, I, I would like to ask you a question to get your opinion about it. Um, and if you don't want to answer, that's fine too. I'm just curious because I've been asking different people about it. I said, "Here's the question: What do you think happens to you when you die? What do you think happens? Everybody dies. What do you think happens? Then leave it there. Okay. Now you're asking for their opinion." And when they start giving their opinion, it's certainly appropriate to ask more questions of clarification about the things they've said so you can get a clearer understanding of, of that. Now, once they give you whatever their understanding is, you can ask this. That's the first Columbo question, basically. What do you mean by that? But you're initiating that one. Sure. In the second case, I mean, in the second, then you say the second question. So why do you think that's what happens? Yeah. And just hear what they have to say. Now, uh, uh, I would suggest that the Christian in this case not be committed to going any further necessarily, because mm -hmm. it may not, there may not be an opportunity. They might say, well, what do you think? And why do you think that? And you don't want to force then, it. Yeah. You, you don't want to make it seem like it's a trap. Like you're just yeah. saying this so you can jump on them with the gospel. All right. But certainly that kind of question does open a door, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Or how about this? What do you think is wrong with the world? Do you think the world is the way it's supposed to be? No, of course not. What do you think's wrong? Now, the, the some paper in London 100 years ago asked that question, printed out, and um, what's his name? I got his books back here. The, you know, the um, the Roman Catholic uh, eight, nine, late 19th. I knew it was going to be Chesterton. 
Yeah, Chesterton. Chesterton. And he said, I am. I am. That's it. Yeah, yeah. you're ahead of me. Yeah, he said, I am. Um, and so, but it's a good question, though, to um, to ask people and let them opine about it <clears throat> and then draw them out. Now, when they raise their opinion, when they offer their opinion about what's wrong with the world, keep in mind, there are all kinds of um, convictions or assumptions that are going to be embedded in that, that you can then start asking about. And a lot of those are going to be moral. Okay. Mm -hmm. What do you think is wrong with the world? What do you think that is? Well, whatever, you know, people aren't trained to do what's right. Okay. Well, what do you mean? What's right? When you say what's right, what do you have in mind? And then you keep drawing them out. Now, of course, yeah. these kinds of statements aren't going to make any sense at all in that context of that conversation, unless a person is referring to some objective standard of right and wrong that's over the universe. That's what makes sense of the problem of evil. If they start coming out with their subjective things like, well, that's not what I would do, or that's not what I like, or whatever. Well, why should anybody do what you like? You know, why is that? Uh, well, they're assuming that we ought to take other people's feelings into consideration, maybe. But now, again, they're smuggling in a moral absolute. So I'm just giving an example of how a conversation might go where you're really trying to draw them out. Remember, in this one, I just kind of briefly role played. Mm -hmm. I wasn't making any st statements at all. Mm -hmm. I'm just asking about their view and asking for a justification. Now, I like the moral issue a lot. And I have you know my ears tuned to this because- yeah. There's a lot of people who talk like moral relativists, but don't want other okay, people to be relativists. You've used that word a few times. Oh, Why yeah, don't you okay. quickly just explain what that is? Because Okay. A moral relativist is a person, <clears throat> thank you for that question, is a person who believes that when it comes to moral questions, what is good, what is evil, what is right, morally speaking, what is wrong, um, there is no such thing. There is no overarching set of laws that apply to everybody. You have your view, I have mine. Or in other words, you have your truth, I have my truth. Okay, yeah. you don't judge me, I don't judge you. We are in separate moral universes, okay? Because all you can say about morality is that it's just a matter of individual opinion, all right? Or it may be a group's individual opinion. <clears throat> Pardon me, that's where the cultural relativism comes into play, you know, so, but it, it is a denial of any objective standard of right or wrong. It's all up to the individual. By the way, that was my view when mm -hmm. I was uh, an anti-war protester in the 60s. All right. Why was I an anti-war protester, by the way? Um, uh, because I thought the war in Vietnam was a an immoral war. Wait a minute. How does that work? Yeah. If you're a moral relativist, how could that war be immoral? The war be immoral. Now, it could be immoral to me. That's relativist, right. but I can't say it is immoral in itself because now I'm 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 identifying an an objective reality sure. there. So, and that's the difference between moral relativism or moral subjectivism. It's all yeah. in the subject and moral objectivism or absolutism. So you're going to have a lot of people that claim to be this first thing, a relativist. You can't push your morality on me because there is none of that stuff to push around. It's just a matter of individual opinion. But then in the next breath, they'll be making moral judgments on other people that sound a lot like objectivist moral judgments. Okay. Yeah. How about this one? They will say something like this. There's no objective morality. It's just a matter of individual opinion. Therefore, it's wrong for you to push your morality on me. 
Oh, we're going to Frank Turek this. I can hear it coming. Did, did you, I mean, you could hear it right there. There's a contradiction. Yeah. It's yes. almost like saying there are no moral rules. Here's one. Mm. It doesn't fit. And well, all you have the, to do is say that. Yeah. Yeah. The question which Frank would say, and yeah, he got this from me. I'm just saying, don't oh, tell him yet. <laughs> I love it. I love no, it. No, we work together a lot, obviously. Yeah, I know. Frank's a really smart guy. But but um, the the what we, we're going to say, if you don't think it's right to push your morality on other people, then why are you pushing your morality on me right now? with what you're saying. You shouldn't be doing that. Well, why are you doing it then? So they are talking like a relativist, but they're acting like an objectivist. And this happens all the time. And all we have to do is just ask a few questions about that contradiction and see what they do with it. Well, you said something, I think that it, I think our listeners, if there's like a little nuggets take away and then they read the book, you said, my ears are attuned to it. Yeah. And so I think one just a tiny baby step people can do if they want to start having spiritual conversations is just start attuning themselves to hear that kind of stuff when people are talking about big That's things right. that are happening in the world or in their own lives, because you're exactly right. People make those comments all the time. Uh, I wanted to ask, and maybe you've already said them, but what this was one of the questions uh, that was suggested, and I like it. I want to hear your thoughts. What do you think are the top three questions that non-believers ask uh, in this kind of realm, like the kinds of things that they're asking that then we can give a satisfying answer. Yeah. Well, okay. Answer. Well, just a qualifier, um, whether it's satisfying to the non-believer <laughs> is an open issue. All right. Sure. And the harder ones are the sexual ones. All right. Yeah. Because the sexual ones require um, you, to have a kind of common sense assessment of the nature of reality. And this is largely gone now in our culture when I've somebody says that same thing yes yeah that men can be pregnant how are you going to persuade somebody otherwise you know the the conviction is so unusual and uh, that it's by the way that's a relativistic statement that's saying reality is in our minds if right our external body has male sex organs but in our minds we believe we are female then we are female Reality is what our mind creates. Now, that's yeah. a relativistic kind of response. I think the sexual issues are really big. They're front and center right now, the gender yep. stuff. Okay. Yep. And I think that our posture right now is largely um, defensive in that regard. And I'll, I'll expand on that in a moment. The gender sex issues are big because this is the way people judge whether God is good or not. If God doesn't uh -huh, okay. allow me to do whatever yep. I want sexually, then he's not a good God. That's the way people see it. Interesting, Very tough yeah. to deal with. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the other issue is the, the nature of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, yeah. the authority, and some of the problems that people see in the Bible, like slavery sure. or alleged genocide or that kind of thing. And uh, part of the difficulty there is they are judging uh, an ancient culture by modern standards, sure. instead of seeing how God is working with that culture to make it better than it was right. under purely Gentile or pagan kind of rule. And I, I still think the atheist issues are really important. So that would be the third issue. Does God exist? Because that is the uh, that is the uh, the threshold or not threshold, but the watershed issue. If God exists, this takes you in one direction. If God does not exist, it takes you an entirely different direction with everything else. Okay. So that is really the most important issue. And people are, are, are confused on this. I mean, they sometimes they say, well, maybe we exist, and then they make them into something inconsequential. And that's why they say I'm spiritual, but not religious. That's, well, that was going to be my follow up there. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like there's a lot more people now 
that will say, oh gosh, of course there's something out there. There had to be something that created all of this. It's something loving. It's the energy all around us. It connects us, blah, blah, blah. But, but there's no, that, that doesn't move forward into my life ought to look different, or I ought to think about these things in a different way or yeah. Well, the way it's involved, you know, the way you just put it is very convenient when you think about it, something yeah. out there, a life force connecting us all the very loving. Okay. What demand does that make on you as an individual? Makes None. no demand on you. Right. Easy. It's very low on individual responsibility, very high in personal freedom. Oh, people like that. Okay. Yeah. What they don't want is a God with a face. Yeah. You know, a God that, 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 uh, has, has that that makes demands you know yeah. our story starts pardon me in sorry our story no, starts in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth okay mm -hmm. what that says in part and i developed this in a different book called the story of reality which i think you mentioned early mm -hmm. earlier what that says right from the beginning is that this is a world that god made the story that follows is about him and about the domain that he created and is rightful king over. You add Ooh, king to that. domain, and that's called kingdom, all right? Mm -hmm. It's about the kingdom of God, his rightful authority over all that he's created. That's the way the whole story starts. That's, I think, the theme of the story myself. Now, this is not something that people are interested in hearing about. Uh, they want to be kings yep. and queens of their own domain. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is right. That, well, that's it. That that that's why I call relativism the primal heresy in the book Street yeah. Smarts, because that's where it all started. Right. Right. Yeah. No, this is all really good. OK, so you said you were going to come. You're going to circle back to and we're running out of time. But so sexuality uh, and then just the actual atheist questions. And I've already forgotten what the second one was that you said people have the Bible attached oh, yeah. to the Bible. Yeah. yeah. And we've had we've had Paul Copan, we've had Jay Warner Wallace, and various people right. come on the show to yeah, kind of great. tackle that one. But but circle back to the question of sexuality. But you you said something interesting. People want to believe that there's a God that would let them that do whatever they want to do, it, whether he's loving or not. Because if he was loving, That's he would right. let me do what I want. Right. What what's kind of the first maneuver there when you're talking to people? Well, I, I, I'm what I, what I'll give you my 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 tactical strategy, so to speak, in that. And I I think that it's false. First of all, that a person who loves another person will give that other person anything they want. You yeah. know, as a parent, parents, we all know that's think, ridiculous. There you go. There, and that's yeah. the best example as a parent. Uh, now, my my daughters, um, I have two daughters, one's 18 and one's 15. I know that's weird because I'm an old guy, but um, I don't remember how that happened. Nevertheless, I still need prayer. So please help me out there. But okay. when they were younger, of course, they don't like shots. Okay, but Papa gave them shots. We had to go in and yeah. get this awful evil thing that, that they didn't want to get. But why did I do that? Because I love them. Because I understood something about reality that they don't understand, that there are dangers out there, and this is a way to protect them from the dangers. Okay, now just transfer that to God, God, our Heavenly Father, it, it, that he, the creator of everything, understands everything. And so he made a world that works a certain way. I call it the structure of reality. Incidentally, I use these words instead of saying the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, because that's a put off to a lot of people. All right. Yeah. What the Bible is doing is telling us the nature of reality. All right. Yeah. And a lot of that we can figure out on our own just by looking around. Yeah. Um, so um, God is telling us this is the way the world works. And, uh, and, 
uh, this is the way I made it to work. And if you follow my instructions, then the results for you will be good, yeah. not bad. It's interesting in Matthew 19, when Jesus is challenged about the issue of marriage and uh, mm -hmm. divorce, divorce. Yeah. for any reason, the, the Pharisees were asking him about that. His response is to go back to the very beginning. And here's what he says. Have you not read? Hey, mm -hmm. what's the matter with you guys? Where have you been? You've had this well, book be... for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But it's actually worse than that. I'll tell you why. He says, from the beginning, they have been male and female. God made mm -hmm. them that way. And for this cause, now that's chapter one. Then he goes to chapter two. A man shall leave his mother and father. Notice the binary sexuality in both cases. And cleave to his yeah. wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. So now we have lots of things that are going on in just that statement. He said, what God has designed. And my my excursus here for a second is, you don't need the Bible to know this. Yeah. He wasn't Jesus. Jesus wasn't just speaking as the incarnate son of God that had the Holy Scripture there that he knew by heart or whatever. Any reasonably observant human being could make the same point. Sure. Okay. This is like no duh. Right. And mm -hmm. so what Jesus does in that one statement, I'll sum it up this way. He, his view of marriage is one man with one woman becoming one flesh, that's sex, for one lifetime. That's his view. Easy. But it covers all the bases. Binary yeah. sexuality, homosexuality, bestiality, yeah. fornication, adultery, uh, same-sex marriage, did Jesus, mm -hmm. gender did mm -hmm. Jesus have any opinions about that? Yeah, they're all right there in Matthew 19. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um that's this is the, this is the way I mean my general strategy of approaching that. You know, I have some dialogues in the book in Street Smarts about some of those okay. things. And I'll Good. just give you one example for the gender one because we are on the defense with gender. We are not demanding that other people adopt our views. We are yeah. campaigning to be able to have our own view. All right. So when somebody pushes me to use what they think are the appropriate pronouns for someone who's transgender, my question is this. And notice how with my question, I'm playing off of their value system. Do you think mm -hmm. it's important for somebody to be um, to be uh, have have authenticity about the way the things that they believe to live consistent with the way they believe? No. Yeah, of course they do. Sure. That's their case for the right. transgender person. This is their authentic no self. Okay. Second question. What what do you call it when a Christian believes one set of things, but then acts, says he believes one thing, but then acts completely different from that? What do you call that? A hypocrite. A hypocrite. So here's my final question. Why are you asking me? No, you're not even asking me. You're telling me not to be authentic with my own view. And you're telling me I should be a hypocrite regarding my own views. Yeah. That's a question. Right. Okay. So now I'm putting it on them. I'm waiting for them to answer. Is yeah. that your truth? I might say, yeah, that's my truth. Then why are you why are you forcing me to live by your truth instead of living Ooh, yeah. by my own truth? Yeah. Okay. There again, I'm leveraging their authenticity and your truth ideas, which I think are corrupted in this sure. culture. Nevertheless, I'm leveraging their language against their view to make my point. Yeah. That's really good. So, I mean, I can tell already people are going to want to read some of these conversations in the book and we are sadly out of time for our conversation. Where can <laughs> people so both get the book? I know. Yeah. Where can people get the book? And also if they just want to see more of what you're doing, where can they go to find you and learn sure. all about all the things? Well, I can answer both questions with one resource and that's str.org. str, .org. str stand to reason 
org. That's our website. We have a, um, a store there. You can get the books there if you'd like. Um, don't tell my staff I told you this, but you can also get them from Amazon and get them probably a I little think quicker. people might know that already. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's very simple. You get it overnight. And uh, there's also an audio version, which I have read myself. Oh, that's, I mean, I don't just I read it. I read it into the tape recording yeah, so yeah, that you yeah. know, they hear my voice. A lot of people like that because they're familiar with the radio show over all these years. And uh, plus, I know how to voice and phrase my own material. I know what of I mean by do. that. So it's it yours. makes it easier. <laughs> uh, it's tedious uh, to go over the text again. 85,000 words with street smarts. There's a lot here. But yeah. nevertheless, uh, that's available. There's also a series of courses that Sondervan has made available and a study guide that's available as well that uh, people can use uh, that goes with either use it by itself. It's got the same co cover. It just says study guide. You'll see that at Amazon. And the end of November, we're here. The, this, the DVDs, courses, 10 courses, 10 sessions in the course, I should say, that uh, was supposed to already have been released. And I think that may be available on Amazon as well. So there's different ways individually or as a group, people can experience the training for street smarts. And I think it'll really transform their effectiveness and their comfort when they engage yes. other people for Christ. Yeah, I could see Sunday school, you know, doing going through the course and then even like role playing and trying some stuff out to sort of go into the world feeling a little more brave, a little more equipped. But I I just so appreciate the the whole idea of asking people questions, coming in in an unthreatening way, using their own well, presuppositions, but their mm -hmm. own worldview and their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own opinions to to craft a, a really authentic conversation where you're talking about right. real things and they're not walking away being bombarded with just your opinion and your thoughts. Mm -hmm. so That's I, a great way to sum it up, yeah. uh, Sarah. It was fabulous. And it is their presuppositions that I think in many cases are just faulty. They yeah. don't fit the way the world actually is. And we want to help them see that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been such a treat for us. And I'm just thrilled about it. And I uh, hope people will go buy the book. Um, any last words before I close us out? Anything you wish you had said and didn't have time to? No, well, I had a very simple aphorism here. I'm talking about how okay. effective this these tools, tactics, and street smarts, they go together so well, but they are still standalone works. Um, they are effective, but here's the aphorism. If you don't do it, it don't work. <laughs> okay. All right. Pretty simple. Yeah. Simple rule of life. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're constantly encouraging our audience to, um, well, not to be ashamed of the gospel and to go and tell others. And so mm -hmm. I think this is a great first or part of the first steps of that. So, so I'm, I'm really happy about that. If you're listening and you want to come to some of our live events, or you want to check out some of our other podcasts, everything you need to know about theology by the pint and theology on air, you can find at theology by the pint.org. We have a few other websites that lead into that as we're rebranding, but theology by the pint.org. All the resources you need are there. And until we see you at a future event or you come back to the podcast, we encourage you as always to question freely, think deeply and disagree as needed.